This is CliffCentral.com. another installment of the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Ramon. Welcome back to the uh, greatest podcast in, well, Africa, I would say. Yeah, let's, uh, yeah, let's, sure, let's start some tribalism against uh, our friends in Ghana, Nigeria, and Kenya, who I'm sure make great podcasts. And Somalia. I'm sure they've got great ones as well. Otherwise, John, how's things? <laughs> Somalia, that anarchic state. Brilliant state. Have you seen it lately? <laughs> I have, I have. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm wondering why... Uh, Nothing can be funny anymore. Well, Gene Wilder died, I suppose. But there are things that are funny. But um, why? What's your point? Are you saying no, comedians just, uh, aren't funny? Yeah, yeah. It's at that point. I don't uh, don't find comedians funny anymore just because instead of trying to be funny, uh, they are trying to toe a line of some sort. Yeah, but those are those are intellectuals posing as comedians. I mean, if you go to a real comedian like Jimmy Carr, he makes rape jokes, which are funny. He and does, but he's, he's getting slowly marginalized, I think, amongst the more famous ones. And, and if we look at who's on television, uh, you look at the late night shows in the US, for example, uh, it's, it's uh, essentially uh, shills for, for the Democratic Party. Oh, who? Jimmy Kimmel, who, who cried for Cecil the Lion, hey, <laughs> and who had uh, Hillary Clinton open a jar of pickles to show that, to show that she wasn't sick. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, great comedy. And, and Fallon, and, and you know, they, they, all, re- oh, yeah. they, they, they all sort of do the same thing. I mean, Trevor Noah, who I, I must be one of the few people who, who kind of likes Trevor Noah, I enjoy his comedy, but uh, when he does comedy, when he does stand up, and he's not making right. something about. Uh, a political statement. He's just being funny, um, but but I I do find that his show obviously because he has to. It's an American sort of late night show where they they have to sort of troll the news. Um, but whatever happened to just making fun of people without expressing an opinion, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, Trevor Noah had this thing about guns and like we must really think deeply. And I think this. No one gives a shit what you think, mate. You're a fucking comedian. How about you just make fun? Of people make fun of Republicans, make fun of Democrats, and uh, have it at that. No one cares about your opinion because, well, it's worthless. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. Yeah. So maybe that's the issue. They're all trying to become sort of political players instead of just making jokes. But if you want good ones, I would recommend in order: yep. Bo Burnham, yeah, who's fantastic. Okay, Jimmy Carr's good. Bill Burr is good. Yeah. Dara O'Brien's good. David Mitchell's excellent. Jim Jeffries. Ah, oh, he's alright. He also tries to be political with his gun. Well, he, he, yeah, he's gone more one way with the gun thing, but that's okay. His gun thing's funny. I mean, it is quite funny, and he hates priests, I suppose, which is funny too. But there are a few good comedians, just don't find them on TV. Yeah, and that's that's so, why so YouTube was. Go, look, go ex- look at those exists. ones, and 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 uh, obviously go to the classics as well. I still uh, regularly listen to uh, Colin and uh, laugh. Yeah, but Colin was a, quite heavily. Colin was a prophet, not a comedian. <laughs> Okay, so uh, the comedy is out of the way. Let's uh, let's talk about something serious. Our uh, guest this week, Sean Nell. Um, you're an energy consultant. Do you want to tell us a bit more about what you do? 
Yeah, um, I've been in the energy space since 2008 when um, the first set of load shedding hit South Africa. Um, been heavily involved with consulting to the Energy Intensive Users Group, working in a number of uh, government roundtables and think tanks around the energy issue, and uh, now hopefully try and educate some of the users on how we can pull this situation together. All right, Ramon? Well, I mean, talking about energy, I mean, I don't know about you chaps, but I haven't had load shedding in about a year. So, so everything's off, perfect. Hats off to Brian Molefe, not his son, because he's a bit of a bastard. He went to jail for throwing things at, at UCT. But anyway, uh, Brian Molefe, I mean, since he's come in, I haven't had load shedding. And I mean, that's what matters to me personally. Like, I don't care about public hospitals too much. Um, but yeah, so I mean, what's the problem here? Yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> I think as a as a homeowner, we can well not if you with city power because city power seems to load shed irrespective of whether Eskom's load shedding or not. But um, the reason we don't have systemic load shedding like we had is not through any miraculous transformation of Eskom's performance. It's really because large energy users in the country have declined so significantly. So it's really just an indictment on the economy as a whole, um, and I think that. That is a significantly huge issue, which, which 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 we don't talk about. We're too busy congratulating each other about the lack of load shedding. But the number of impacts that it has going forward are phenomenal. For example, um, with the decline in uh, demand coming from the large industrial users, Eskom's revenues have fallen significantly, which means next year they're going to have to make up the shortfall in revenue by increases in tariffs which is going to have a further increase in uh, decrease in demand. So we're going to have this spiral where the man in the street in the next couple of years won't have load shedding, but won't be able to afford electricity either. But in simple economic terms, I always thought that, I may get this wrong, if supply decreases, demand, well, demand increases, demand but if demand increases. decreases, supply should technically decrease as well, one would expect, or the price thereof, one would think. Yeah, and I think that, I suppose one of the the... The interesting things about the electricity sector is that it's an odd economic good. Um, electricity cannot be stored, so it has to be produced at the moment that demand requires it. Um, and that's why there was a fundamental difference between 2008 load shedding and, and the recent load shedding. 2008 load shedding is that Eskom couldn't meet um, the demand at, at capacity. In other words, everyone wanted it, and there wasn't enough plant to be able to fill it, fulfill it. In the recent in 2014 and 15, the issue was an energy uh, uh, deficiency. So, in other words, Eskom had the size of plant to meet the demand, but that plant was operating so inefficiently that it couldn't actually produce its nameplate amount of energy for the demand needed. So, we we had enough supply, we just mm. were, we're, it just wasn't in good enough shape to be able to use it. All right, so let's go back to 2008 because what I imagine, well, this is when we all notice. Uh, the cataclysmic failure uh, of ESCOM, really. Uh, but it starts before then. So you got involved in 2008 with the kind of group that came together to deal with that crisis. But tell us a little bit about what caused 2008, um, what happened since 2008, and why we then had another crisis sort of six years down the line. Yeah. So I think, and this is a critically important thing, because too often we see a debate on on social media about the issue of government policy being a failure. Mm. Um, and, and 2008 wasn't a government policy failure. It was an implementation failure. In 1994, government said going forward, all uh, power will be produced by um, IPPs. Eskom is no longer required to build as a previous um, uh, institution of the apartheid government and, and that way in which we, they would diversify the power sector. 
So Eskim then said, okay, well, in that case, we don't have to take into consideration any depreciation and recapitalization, and we can drive our prices down. Of course, as they drove the prices down, no IPP could compete with, with those power prices. Mm-hmm. So no one invested. Sorry, IPP is independent power, power producer. Producers, right. yeah. So so no one could come in and compete with Eskom's marginal cost of electricity because Eskom stripped out all the the need to recapitalize its plants and drove the costs down until we had the lowest electricity prices in the world. Um, so uh, we had this issue where the policy was good. We need diversity in power supply and, and private players in the market. So great from, from government, but we didn't look at the the the. I suppose the position that Eskom occupied in that stage and then make implementation decisions which actually affected that. So come 2008, no one had built any power plant and we had growing demand. We were on the back of a commodities boom, uh, massive expansion, and bang, Eskom couldn't then um, supply the actual demand at that stage. So that's why we ran into we, – we, we reached a capacity constraint. We, we couldn't supply any more power to the country anyway, any time anyone needed it. We were also then saved by some glorious um, impact then. We had the 2008 financial global meltdown. You know, So, again, through some like miraculous uh, uh, way. No Thank goodness for global <laughs> economic collapse. <laughs> you know, so we, we can all go around clapping ourselves in the back saying we made a difference. But you know, we, were, we were rescued by the global economic collapse at, at that stage. And demand fell away significantly and Eskom could um, – could stop the load shedding and uh, and then start looking at building new plants. But the problem that we had at that stage is Eskom were desperate. Um, so they rushed into to buying two big power stations, Mandupi and Kusile. They paid a significant premium for it. Um, by that stage, Eskom had already lost all its internal capacity for people to actually build power stations. So no one knew what they was doing. Um, and we sit with a situation now where neither Madupi and Kassile are fully online or nearing completion in time and on budget. Um, yeah, I mean, the budgets have gone out of control. Uh, I think the original estimate was $150 billion, I believe, yeah, for Madupi, and now it's somewhere close to 300, four, yeah, 300, 300 yeah. yeah. Okay. So, you know, so, so that's exactly the issue is we've had, we've had this massive overrun in costs, which again is going to have a significant impact on tariffs going forward for the average man in the street. Um, and industry, which, uh, as we're seeing already, as prices go up, there's going to be no demand for it, which means it's going to further depress the, the economic demand. So you said something interesting a little bit earlier, uh, which is that government policy got blamed. But if government's not to blame, who is to blame? Because they're the ones with, as far as I can understand it, they're the ones who own the power producer, ESCOM. Uh, they don't really allow any private access to that system. Uh, and obviously the independent power producers, they've made it very difficult for these people, even despite not wanting to get involved because of costs. Now that the costs uh, are, are, are better, uh, it's very difficult from a regulatory perspective. So, you know, if we, if we, if we have to point a finger, is government not responsible? Well, I think, you know, we have to look at the situation at in 2008, and, and there's, there's always been this problem in the electricity sector that there is an asymmetry of information. T- technical expertise, information, everything resides within ESKIM. Mm. You know, b- uh, before um, the build program was def- always def- uh, defined by something which was called the integrated resource plan, mm. uh, which is a, a model on what is the demand, what is the pricing, what are the, the different technologies – that only resides within Eskom. It doesn't reside anywhere else. So, so we had this situation where we had the monopoly who had um, full control over the skills, knowledge, um, the the technical expertise, access to the grid. 
So where we had a government who were frustrated by their inability. And if we remember, if you look back to those days, uh, Department of Energy was purely just one of the divisions within minerals and energy. It wasn't actually a full-fledged ministry. And at that stage, Department of Public Enterprises was very strong as the shareholder, as a ministry, whereas mines and energy was, was a relatively weak environment. So D- Department of um, Public Affairs, um, Enterprises with Alec Irwin and stuff, was strong pushing saying Esker must be the only person to, to be involved and, and energy didn't have the capacity, technical ability to be able to fight that. Mm. So they abused their monopoly position. Yeah, the monopoly position given to them by the state. Thankfully, we got the the Competition Commission not looking into this because... <laughs> The competition's bad in the private sector, but if the state does it, nah, fuck it, yeah. we'll just go along. Uh, so, what is what is the point of having a single provider of electricity in this country, other than lining pockets of cronies? I assume, inevitably, that is the only reason why we have it. But uh, pragmatically, is there any reason for a single provider of energy? No, I mean there there is no there is no good reason to to have a single provider. Um, and what we've seen globally is that there is a very distinct difference between generators of electricity and managers of the grid. Um, you know, so the only the only good argument for for the monopoly is is that it's uh, it's very capital intensive. So so you need something with a very strong balance sheet, and you need something which can uh, invest in in multi you know twenty thirty year projects to be able to build these power stations. Um, you know, and there have been a number of initiatives to try and split up Eskom into uh, the generation and distribution and uh, what they call an independent system operator. But again, the, the lack of technical capacity outside of Eskom means that it's it's created one of those situations where we have an unintended consequence that uh, we can't break it up because it it, it exists as a single organism. There there are there are unintended consequences of public policy from the state. I am. Shocked. Absolutely shocked. Well, I'm speechless. <laughs> speechless. I can't believe this. I mean, you haven't heard me talk. I'm just, I don't know what to say. <laughs> so, sorry, one last question from my side, then, yeah. which you can take over. Uh, why is ESCOM holding on to all this information as a public, as a public, well, not a public company, as, as a state owned company? Surely they, privacy shouldn't really be an issue there concerning well, uh, their own uh, company. Right? No, well, you know, so every couple of years, Eskom is required to open their books and and allow us to to inspect it through this what's called a multi-year price determination, where they apply for for tariff increases. But the reality is, is that what is shown to the public and what is shown to the regulators are two very different things. Um, and even then, Eskom have a having monopoly on the skills in those areas can be quite. Uh, vague in, in what they provide. So being able to comment on it effectively is, is difficult. And that's why you have a number of people like Anton Eberhardt with the um, Energy Research Council down in Cape Town actually taking quite a lot of um, Eskom to task on a lot of these issues. So th- there are pockets of, of people who can comment on it. But as a whole, um, you know, in the last MYPD, it actually struck me there was a, a concern uh, Soweto Electricity Users Group, whatever that came in, and their comment at, at the hearings were, I, I, we can in no way comment on this because we don't have the capacity or the skills to be able to understand what they're asking us to to comment on. Um, and I can at that sta- at that stage I had a little giggle. I thought, oh, you, know, you know, typical. Everyone wants to say something about things they don't know about. But the reality is that the man in the street can't comment on these things because they're deep technical questions about the levelized cost of energy and, and nonsense. But it comes down to a simple thing. Do we have the power when we need it? And is that power affordable? Um, and I think in, in the South African case, uh, we're heading to a point where we have more, th- we have too much power and it's not affordable. We have too much power. Whoa. Explain that. We, we've now overinvested. Whoa. 
Well, it's not that we've over-invested. It's that the demand has fallen away. So the people who use the power no longer want it. And that's for, for two reasons. One, electricity prices have reached a point now where household owners themselves to, to mitigate municipal tariff and taxes and, and ESKIM ongoing increases and load, well, which we say network breakdowns in the municipalities are starting to look at self-generation options, putting a couple of solar panels on their roof, storage prices are coming down so they can put a couple of batteries on, even generate, generator prices are, are significantly down. So, so the upper, if you like, middle class or wealthy, wealthier classes are starting to look at ways in which they can uh, get off the grid from a price, mm. price hedge and from a security of supply issue. That means that, that that demand is going away. Large industrial customers are closing down. So this issue of government uh, trying to get involved in beneficiation and, and, and all that sort of stuff is nonsense. Those industries have shut down. South Africa won't become an energy-intensive industry in the future. It can't be. We can't reverse the, the losses of those industries to China and, and uh, various other jurisdictions. So that demand has, uh, has declined. And also the demand – has changed. South Africa used to be driven primarily by industrial demand. You know, 60% of the energy consumed on a day was through industrial demand, which is flat, stable, uh, easy to predict, easy mm. to cost, easy to build, easy to collect. Now, um, we've seen the only growth sector from electricity has come from households. And so households use their energy from 6 in the evening till 8 at night when there's a big spike. So Eskom has to have the plant available, but the actual energy sales over that is very small. So it becomes very difficult to pay back those plants, which means prices rise, more people fall off the grid. Because you, you're only using those plants, if I understand it correctly, for two hours out of 24 a day. Exactly. So we have Madupi and Kusile essentially to service two hours of the day. Exactly. Just exactly. for people to watch generations and shit like that. <laughs> yeah. That's a hell of a lot. That's <laughs> very expensive it's just also, to watch. It's, uh, also, for, it's also for you to feed your dogs in the light. I mean, you know. <laughs> I feed my dogs in the darkness where they remain. <laughs> all, all the time. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> um, especially with the pugs. <laughs> so, okay, so, so demand is down, uh, but prices are increasing. So, I mean, that, what, what's the, what's the, what's the, what's happening there? That, that's not normal. Well, so, so, so we sit in a weird situation where Eskim isn't guaranteed a tariff. Eskim's guaranteed a revenue. So people tend to forget this, that NURSA doesn't allow Eskom a tariff. Eskom allows um, – I mean, NURSA allows Eskom a, a, a revenue. So they say our revenue requirement for the year is $300 billion. And they go – NURSA trawls through the, the stuff to say, is it, uh, is it efficient? Is it prudent? And they scratch out some sort of stuff and they say, all right, we'll give you $250 billion for the year. What Eskom then do is they divide it by their sales and that's how the tariff comes. So as sales fall away – the, obviously, the revenue requirement doesn't mm, fall away, so increases. it just means the tariff are increasing exponentially all the time. So, so we have this weird situation, and this is why there's this backlash from Eskom around IPPs, because IPPs, the marginal cost of IPP energy is going to be way lower than Eskom can produce it, which means that uh, it's going, there's going to be more and more demand for IPPs as opposed to Eskom's power, because IPPs, remember, they only sell their electricity on what – uh, they signed an agreement for. And if they can't p produce power at that price, they have to shut down. Whereas Eskom can sell their, their energy at whatever price they produce it at. Um, and, and that's, and that's the problem because the IPPs will allow NURSA for the first time to start getting an independent view on how efficient is Eskom in actual, in their, in their operations. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, tell us a little bit about NURSA because 
as a member of the public and someone who doesn't know very much about the energy industry, uh, I don't trust them. Uh, and I'll give you a re- my reasoning. Um, every time ESCOM has ever gone to them, pretty much, except the last time, I think, um, they've given ESCOM what they asked for. Uh, that's always an increase, which always hits me in the pocket. Um, I can't believe that ESCOM is, as a government organization, firstly, generally they don't spend well, so um, they're not monitoring the expense as well. Secondly, I've seen Megawatt Park. Uh, it's completely unnecessary and uncalled for. Uh, and if you look at some of the assets that ESCOM owns and has, uh, once again, unnecessary and uncalled for. So, you know, when ESCOM goes, well, we need 300 million or billion or whatever it is to, to, to function. Well, no. Uh, if someone came in and knew what the hell they were doing and wasn't trying to sort of pay out these large sums, I, I think the one thing I heard once upon a time was that the average salary at ESCOM is something ridiculous like 400. 600K. I was going to say 40 grand a month. So, um, you, you know, uh, maybe that's, that is justified and maybe I'm completely wrong because people who are highly qualified in providing electricity need, you know, engineering degrees and all the rest of it and they fully deserve that money. Uh, but it doesn't seem to me like it's a well managed, uh, machine. And then on top of it, we have Nursa who, uh, it would appear, uh, kind of just, does the tick on the sheet that, look, guys, we're overseeing them, but are you really? So give me your perspective or, or a different view. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think we have been lucky to have NURSA over the last several years um, in that NURSA has some really, really good people. Um, you know, the, the only sort of technical skills outside of Eskom then reside in, in, the, in the NURSA environment. So, you know, the, the one thing we did say in the, lo- in the last hearings is that Eskom have actually got to stop gaming the system because – what what tends to happen is they come for an application, they go, oh, well, we need 25% increases. Nurse then goes, okay, we'll give you nine, and then they settle on 12. You know, so so it, the question is, you know, how how can they decline so quickly? You know, why why are, why are those expenses being able to be eliminated so quickly in, in the process? So so we've always felt that there was a gaming a gaming of that um, tariff mm. application system by Eskom because they, you know, they they, 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 they know they're, they're going to get rejected, cut, so exactly. they ask for a certain amount, knowing it'll be get cut, and you know, and and. Um, four years ago, it was when uh, NERSA awarded them those big increases, the 25% per annum. Mm, mm. You know, after the first three years, Eskom came back and said, actually, by the way, we don't need this much. We're sitting with massive cash surpluses. And, um, you know, and, and that's when, the, and that's when NERSA themselves, I think, actually just got unbelievably irritated because, you know, it was clear then that they'd been gamed. And, and that's why they were so hard on Eskom in the last, you know, Eskom, I think, asked for 16% increase in, Nurse gave them an eight percent increase, which, even as uh, you know, we thought that they would need about ten percent to to maintain some sort of financial viability. So uh, they were hard on them, but I think you know it's a consequence of being gamed all the time that mm. that they then shut it down. So, um, so I think you know people might look at Nurser as the bad guy, but uh, actually Nurser has been one of the good guys and for, from a tariff perspective. So is Nurser like the Tuli Madoncela of the energy sector in a way? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, they're, they're at least the, the people that, um, that are trying to balance this issue of affordability and sustainability. You know, they, they recognize Eskom needs to be sustainable for the country, but they also recognize that the man in the street needs to be able to afford electricity. It, it needs to be something which, which is an enabler of, of economic growth and not something which is, is hindering economic growth. But we get into that tipping point now where, um, unless something fundamentally changes in the way Eskom operates, we can no longer contain the costs going forward. And that's going to re- create a big problem. You know, we have people who are now for the first time getting access to electricity, but actually can't afford it. 
It's almost right. worse than not having access to electricity. Well, I think what's worse than that is just buying coal that can't be used. <coughs> Guptas, you know. Well, you know, exactly. Um, so have to beep that out. <laughs> the Guptas. Um, <laughs> Again, I have to beep that out. They, they've gone. They're in <laughs> Dubai or somewhere. Who knows? But, but, I mean, but, I mean we're sitting in a, in a country where, you know, electricity was the cheapest ever because it was subsidized. Now it's actually quite expensive, I believe. Globally, do you think, or just for us specifically? No, no, no. I mean, we, we've now reached global parity with a lot of first world countries. Right. Um, so, but they have um, nuclear power. Which is, which is like perfectly that. fine if you're middle class. Well, well exactly. But, but not, not if you're poor. And, and not, yeah, not if your industry and not if your, your economy relies on energy intensity. Mm. Um, so, you know, we now have people, for example, ARM, which are building their smelters in Indonesia, Canada, uh, you know, and, and that should be an example of South Africa's uh, a BE success story. But th- they're leaving South Africa from a beneficiation. Why? Because one, the the advantage that electricity gave us is gone, which now means we have to look at all the other things. What is the government policies? What are the labour issues? And people are then moving out. You know, so South Africa sits with almost ninety percent of the world's chrome reserves. Yeah. Five years ago, we uh, we did ninety percent of of the world's smelting for for chrome. In other words, we were the price controllers. We're now down to forty percent of the smelting. China's picked up the smelting capabilities. Um, they use less efficient smelters, which means it's having a climate change impact on us without the the benefit of the economic growth. Um, and this comes back down to these issues of of government policy. You know, so well intentioned policy with bad consequences. For example, the car- the carbon tax. You know, we, we're not, we're not, we're not changing emissions. They've just moved to China. We're still going to feel the impact, but we're not going to have the growth. Right. I mean, I don't know we had so many, so much chrome. I'm sure the people in Boxburg. Yeah, I don't know. We do. We've got, uh, our chrome deposits and our platinum deposits yeah. are amongst the largest in the world. And our copper, I think, is also yeah, up there. Pretty good. Yeah. But, the, but the, the, the key thing is though, it doesn't matter how much we have, it's how we get it and for what price, right? What prices we use. But you're arguing that if you see the electrical the price of electricity is actually a bit too high, amongst other things, with labor included, to actually get that out and sell it, right? It just doesn't make any feasible monetary sense for yeah, someone to do it. Well, well, exactly. So they're being able to beneficiate it cheaper in China. So we, we right. shipping out the ore, shipping back the finished product, product which is ridiculous. You know? And so they're using less efficient methods of smelting and all that yeah, stuff. Less efficient, you know, they are less environmentally conscious, so, you know, all the consequences yeah. that... The, so a worker falls into the smelter, they don't, they don't care. care. Exactly. So, you know, so, so the Unintended consequences of these things. South Africa cares. China doesn't. China, you're looking at me like uh, we're killing South Africa. No, I don't think China cares much for their <laughs> no, worker no, no. rights. Uh, yeah. In South Africa, we could probably care a little bit too much. Um, okay, let's talk about sort of energy production and, and what are efficient forms of energy production. Because it seems to me that um, obviously I, I'm no supporter of Greenpeace. So I understand that coal is what we have. Uh, we have a lot of coal uh, surplus yeah. as well in the country and, and resource. Uh, so it makes sense to have coal power plants, but they seem to be quite intensive in terms of the maintenance that they require, the amount of staff that they require, um, trucks, well, trucking the, and The emissions, stuff. just the um, emissions on their own, I think would, I mean, if you believe in, I think emissions are a problem. Yeah, emissions, look, emissions I mean, yeah. in, in reality, even if you, we can argue about climate change, for example, but, but emissions just in health, we know that if you look right. close to a power station, the, uh, incidence of asthma in that town goes up. Yeah. So, uh, you know, these are all things that, that, that affect the population. Um, so we use coal, cause coal, for all those reasons, and maybe you can tell us some more, um, why aren't we using other methods 
more more sort of frequently. Why haven't we? We can get onto the plans yeah. of governments. I don't want to yeah. get there yet. Yeah. But why haven't we used uh, more efficient methods? Well, so so, so let's before. <laughs> 2010, the way in which Eskom decided what to build was what's called the least cost model. In other words, they would look at all technologies and go, what would produce electricity at the least cost? And given our coal reserves and the, the you know coal plant technology, it was always a coal uh, a coal solution. So it made sense for us to to build coal and use coal as, as the basis for our energy generation. In 2010, for the first time, government said, no, hold on, guys, we we actually need to balance. Um, uh, diversity of energy generation and we need to balance the environment. So for the first time and cost. So the first time we had this like three-way balance between environment, sustainability and, and least cost. And that's why 2010 introduced, for example, the renewable energy component. And then they went out for the bid windows. Now, what that bid window showed us was that coal is no longer the, the least cost-effective um, uh, generating technology. Prices of renewable energy like solar and batteries are falling at such a rapid rate. That's why I say that people are now being able to to hedge their own prices by mm. putting solar on the roof, which uh, 10 years ago wasn't really feasible. It, it was very green of you to put solar on your house, but mm. you know it cost a massive amount of money, and it was really just for, Power for virtue one light signal. Bulb. Exactly. Was, I was yeah. going to say virtue signaling. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but the reality is now that it's, it's unbelievably uh, cost-effective. It's actually cheaper uh, to put solar in your house than to use city power. Uh, power. Um, you get that money back over time. Incredibly quickly. You know? and, and you also then have the added benefit in that you're not suffering – as much as the uh, as the outages we've seen. I mean, city power is is problematic at the moment from mm. from a quality of supply. Oh, in Johannesburg, I have a, an outage probably on average once every six weeks. Yeah, easily, easily. I mean, you you watch them on Twitter. There, you can see how you know how often they're apologising. So, so it's created an opportunity where um, different technologies are now um, are now an option for providing least cost electricity. But also, what we have to understand is that. The, the nature of demand has changed. And, uh, and this comes back down to this issue of, of, um, you say you're not a fan of Greenpeace, but strangely enough, mm. um, we all have the same view that, that nuclear is not the, the answer now. Greenpeace might be on a completely different view. Ours is on a, on a simple view is that the, the changing dynamic of the demand means that government needs to invest in technologies which are adaptive to the demand. We don't yet know where the demand is coming from or where the economy is going from. So we need to be looking at mixes of Gas generation, which have uh, um, a very small capital cost to install, very quick to install a gas plant. Yes, they are, are more expensive over the long run. But if mm. you then mix that with renewable energies where the prices are coming down significantly, you can still get relatively uh, good, uh, stable energy situations with a very cheap cost. And we can displace the coal. Well, is, is that like, like fracking? Uh, not necessarily fracking, liquid, uh, liquid natural gas. Just, um, but so we could get it through yeah, fracking. Exactly. We could get it through fracking, but uh, the reality is Mozambique gas fines are massive, you know, and if, if we start co- looking at, at things from a regional perspective as opposed to just, you know, mm, this is what we have, mm. um, you know, and then also we can do a lot of energy switching. So people putting, using more gas in their home for cooking, um, and heating, um, yes. and then electricity being provided by, by renewable sources, it, it, it will fundamentally change our, our dynamic. Okay. So, Hold on, though. I want to go back a little bit there. So my understanding on the renewables is that one of the problems is that they, you can, we can probably produce enough renewable alone in South Africa, shut down all our coal um, and cover sort of your eight to five with renewable. 
it's that peak that you talk about that we then have a problem with mm-hmm. covering. Mm-hmm. And also solar, the problem is, is you can't really store. Yeah. So at nighttime, when you want to have the shower then at 6 a.m. in the morning and switch on your kettle, that also becomes an issue in a very layman's term. Yeah. Um, no, exactly right. So, so, and that's why we say renewables have to be supported by gas infrastructure because uh, gas, like unlike a, a coal-fired power station, a gas power station, you can turn up in 30 minutes. Uh, whereas a, a coal-fired power station has got to run at a certain level all the time, whether you mm. need that electricity or not. So you can go from from off to to, to, to hundred in in in, in like a short period exactly. Of time. So so they balance each other. That's why they they work very closely. Together. Okay, why are you anti-nuclear? Because I'm a nuclear fan. No, no. So again, so and and this is what I was trying to remind earlier about is we have so many disparate people anti-nuclear. Mm. We I, have to define I, why. I think oh, yeah. So I think the what my issue with you know, if people are anti-nuclear and it comes completely out of fear of the word nuclear, exactly. uh, or they, you know, they watch The Simpsons a lot, and you know, there's a three-eyed fish and Mr. Burns. Yeah. Uh, that's not based on any reason or, or rationale. And it also, if you've read a few too many articles in the New York Times about Chernobyl, yeah. uh, because you know they like sending people there to take cool photos of the forest, yeah. um, you know, that, that's also not a good reason. Yeah. No, no. So, so. Um, we are anti-nuclear now. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's critically important for, for the simple reason is we recognize, um, as the large energy users particularly, that the coal fleet has to be retired and it has to be replaced by baseload. And that baseload power has to be emissions free, okay? Which, okay, which gives us nuclear. What we're saying, we don't need nuclear now. We need nuclear in the future because right now the demand is so depressed that there is no one who can pay for the nuclear costs. Okay. You know, so Greenpeace have this philosophical against nuclear. The anti-corruption guys say, well, it's a corruption fest. We're just saying that nuclear is an important part of the mix, mm. but it's not an important part We don't part require now. it right now. So we build a nuclear plant over the next 10 years. We actually don't need the electricity it's going to produce. No, I mean, South Africa is going to sit with surpluses of electricity in the next five to eight years. Well, good, because Zimbabwe is not going to be able to pay for those surpluses. <laughs> <No>. so, <laughs> well, even free, bigger surpluses. Free electricity <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> so basically, I mean, if we, if we build a nuclear plant now under the, the current estimate, it's going to be a trillion rand. So our yearly budget for the whole country yeah. to be spent on a nuclear plant. Is it no, one plant? Or yeah, no, so, so it's a few. So there would be plants. the six plants, yeah. Right. Um, but we don't need the power. So, so we don't need the power um, and we don't need to sign them all up in a single go. And, and that's what yes. I'm saying. Because we don't yet know the nature of the demand that South Africa is experiencing, we should take, we should make policy decisions which are the path of least regret. Signing nuclear as, as a one-off package now, yeah. is, there is no return. That's sunk. You're dead, basically. So, okay, whereas, so, whereas phasing it in and linking it with renewables and gas gives you flexibility in decision-making. Right. Okay. So, so let, let's get into a bit of the, the conspiracy theory. The nuclear deal. Let, let's go into, into that. So we have uh, – there's a premise. We need a nuclear power station for whatever reason. We don't – the demand – we don't have the demand to need it. It's going to cost a trillion rand – estimate and it's from russia it's not the greatest in terms of uh, transparency so why the hell are we carrying on with this something we don't need that is very expensive <clears throat> and it's from a country that is not very transparent so you know so, so we had this very interesting debates uh, two days ago because um 
Eskin came out and said we have to we have to stop buying renewables because it's based on an old plan, which was the RP twenty ten. But uh, by the same token, so is the nuclear was based on that RP twenty ten. So you know, so they say listen to us on one side, but ignore us on the other side. And the reason being is that at that stage we anticipate well, government anticipated economic growth being at around five and a half percent. Okay, so so while a lot of those assumptions may be correct at five and a half percent, how long is the gap until we reach five and a half percent again? And when you know what, what is the uh, what is the slope to reach that from from zero? How long right. how long are we going to stay at zero? And how long is the slope to reach five and a half percent? Because that's how long we have to then move the the plan out. Mm. Um, and in the interim. We've got these surpluses because Madupi and Kassile will start producing. Um, so the surpluses w- will exist for a while. So again, we, we don't need to make those rash decisions now. Um, so, so, so the point is, why is there this, this drive? Yes. You know, and that fuels conspiracy theories because given that we don't need it, why, why is there such a rush for it? Well, I think we know, right? Oh. I, I think, uh, the ANC knows that they're out of, they're out of power in the next five to ten years. And hell, pockets need to be lined, my friend. Is that is that a premise that's kind of bought? In you know, it's not your job to really speculate, uh, mm. you know. But what do, what do people think? Because it it almost seems irrational. The other part of it that seems irrational is, uh, okay, let's go nuclear, but there are probably better countries to work with for nuclear. Uh, I'm thinking uh, France. Well, France is one example, but even the U.S. possibly yeah, because Korea. they speak English, yeah. <laughs> as as yeah. one example. Um, <laughs> No, well, literally, I, I, I remember at some point there was a debate uh, around the fact that when the Russians installed their, their nuclear plants, everything's labeled oh, in right. Russian. So, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> the knobs and everything are in Russian. Oh, so. even, even go to Japan. I mean, their nuclear plant survived yeah. the bloody tidal wave. Yeah. You know, okay, a, a bit of a mess yeah. was made, but even so, bloody yeah. hell, that was pretty good. Fukushima was a great success in terms of not falling apart. Yeah. Fukushima was a great success. You heard it first on the <laughs> yeah. Renegade Report. Uh, <laughs> You're going to get a bouquet of flowers from <laughs> who died? Who died? N- nobody actually. And Fukushima. Nobody. Nothing. A few fish. Yeah, and pretty it. much. Pretty much. Anyway, um, so I- I'm with you. I'm on your page. Right. Um, so look, obviously, there's these sort of. I would say conspiracy theories, but as Ramon says, it seems pretty blunt. Um, There's a very large deal. Uh, Essentially, it seems that nuclear could be built for a bit less. Is that is that fair to say? Okay, so 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 we have to separate two things. One, let's separate the vendors from from the decision. Mm. Um, So we are assured by every man and his dog that no decision on a vendor has been made, despite. The various, uh, you know, despite the president sitting with yes, the presidents and, of another country and, and Rostam's uh, own press releases and so on, so we we will take it at face value and say no vendor's been a, been a, been appointed. Great. It comes back to the second issue: Why is there an irrational drive for something that we don't need now? Yes, it is an important part of our energy mix into the future, but given where we are from Midwest, we don't need to make those decisions now. Mm. And given the, the pressures on the economy from various other social requirements like education, we, why are we, we doing something now? So it does create a lot of questions in, in terms of, of, of that going forward. Um, so um, the vendor is one issue, and they assure us they haven't made a selection on the vendor, and, and hopefully there will be a transparent and, and, and open bidding process. And that's the second one is the, the timing. Um, and it comes down to this issue of, well, can we get it at a cheaper rate? Well, 
unfortunately, the way in which they've done the modeling is they've done it at such a cheap level that there is actually no plant that's actually come in at that level. And that's why the, the risk is always on the upside. It's not on the downside. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So, so, so you trillions know, on the low end. Trillions on the low end, indeed. Huh. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. There, there is no – I mean, they've modeled it on $4,000 uh, a kilowatt hour, which is – or megawatt, whatever it was. But it's – I mean, it, what it's, we've seen across the world, that it's, it's around 12, 8 to 12, you know, three times that amount. Sure. So two to three trillion by the time we finish with it. So it's, it's significant. And that's why we're saying, you know, if we make a decision of that magnitude, our, mm. our cost of regret is, is massive. What, what process – okay, so government has to choose a vendor – um, but surely there's some process over and above that, like the NURSA process, that then can kind of say to government, but we don't need power. Why are you building another power plant or, or not? There is. There is a process which is supposed to do that, and that process is called the Integrated Resource Plan. So where this 9,600 megawatts of power came from was the 2010 Integrated Resource Plan, which said this is the country's demand, this is its economic growth, this is all our plans, and it's going to have the following mix, including 9,600 megawatts of, of nuclear. The problem is that it's based on assumptions, particularly around demand. And even at that stage, we said to Eskim, Eskim, your demand projections are unrealistic. There has been a, a, a schism in terms of, South Africa's economic growth and its demand for power. You know, it, it used to be there was a one-to-one -one relationship between economic growth and electricity demand. As the countries moved away from energy-intensive industries to secondary and tertiary industries, that that's broken. So it's, there is no longer that that link. So then, in 2013, as was required by the IRP, they produced an updated integrated resource plan, which was then circulated for public comment, which said, "Whoa, we don't need the nuclear." Okay. And what happened? The DG of Energy subsequently went off to pursue her own personal projects, um, and that was quietly shelved and put away. The IRP or? Yes, the IRP update 2013. Yeah. So they are now in the process of redoing it. But what they're finding is that you, when you try and squeeze uh, nuclear, all the IRP, I mean, all the renewable energy projects, all the current uh, capacity and the demand, it's, it can't produce anything. You know, it's saying, we, well, we can't have that. And, mm. you know, the, these, this uh, mainframe is churning away to try and find a solution to a solution that can't be found because they're trying to force the 9,600 megawatts in. Oh, the extra ones that we supposedly need. need. Oh. But now, okay, so we get that. So nuclear deal is awful. The state and ESCOM is awful as well. I'm shocked again. Um, <laughs> so how does this relate is there a link between this nuclear deal and what our Minister of Finance, uh, what's happening to him at the moment? Because I understand that he's really not in favor because I believe he's got a bit of common sense. He's not in favor of the nuclear deal and yeah. all these shenanigans around him are, are happening. Yeah. Is, is there a link there? Well, I, would well, assume. I think there must be and I think it's been spoken by a lot of commentators saying that both his predecessor, well, not his immediate predecessor, but Des van Rooyen's oh, predecessor. Yeah, we don't need to talk about the weekend special. <laughs> we can just skip him and, over. Uh, uh, we're also reluctant to sign off on the nuclear deal. And there's been massive um, uh, pushback within Treasury itself on the issue of affordability. Because I think, again, what people don't understand is that, you know, power is not like a um, – uh, and not power as in political power, as in electricity. Power is not something that uh, – we can build and people will come it, because if you have stranded assets, yeah. the, the costs start spiraling through the roof automatically. Right. Right? We go it's back a, to it's the not eight, stock 
on, no, on your shop yeah, shelves. Yeah, exactly. Right? You can't can, just leave it there no, for months. It's got to be paid back. Yeah. So, so the tariffs are, will, the burden then on the people that exist decline. I mean, it was the same situation in the 80s when there was massive disinvestment from South Africa. Eskom found itself with massive overcapacity. They mothballed a whole bunch they of places. They mothballed a whole lot of, uh, but it was, but we it still was had costing, to pay for it. Exactly. It was costing us a fortune. So that's when they went on a, on a massive drive and then they converted all the farms to electricity. They converted households from gas to electricity. They, Brought in BHP Billiton, brought all the smelters in to give them special pricing deals to be able to pick up that capacity and at least generate cash for, for the utility to pay its, to pay its bills. Uh, and we risk being in that situation again, you know, and then 10 years down the line, everyone's whining about why they are, why are there special pricing deals? Well, because that's what's, well, what's amazing is that there's like so much precedent that a, a one energy provider is like a horrible idea. On so many levels, in terms of pricing, in terms of efficiency, in terms of capacity, in terms of just just you know, intellectual thinking, how can you have a board of however many people deciding what is the best way to have power in the whole country? It's it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's like the bloody Soviet Union. Yeah. No, well, exactly. You know, and and that the and we don't learn exactly from, sorry, we don't learn from this no, at all. One hundred percent. The failing of central management or central planning, whatever, is is, is evident, in the, particularly in the power case. Um, you know, and you know, we, could, we, I think one thing we have to do is there are there are unbelievable pockets of excellence in Eskom. You know, the, the system operator in es, in Eskom is is phenomenal in the way in which they've balanced our you know demand and, and power capacity in, in very difficult situations. And you know, there are very very good technical people, which I think have the in, you know have South Africa good at heart. And I think we just have these bad policy decisions where people are divorced from the, the actual economics of a policy and its impact on, on the local citizens. Um, or, or they just don't care at all. They want to just yeah, you know, fill their own pockets, right? Possibly. For things I, that we don't need. No, possibly. But I think, you know, there's this, this, there's this divorce between numbers. I mean, not, you know, when we used to hear a billion before, we were fab- it was like a massive amount of money. Now, Oh, my DP is 300 billion. Everyone just like, oh, shrugs their shoulders, that's, that's you my, know. That's, that's my it's, annual it's, Woolworths account. Yeah, <laughs> you and me both. I mean, what are you talking about? <laughs> You're not married to my wife, are you? So, <laughs> so just in terms of where we're going, um, we can only hope, I, I assume, that the nuclear deal gets shut down. Simply not because we don't need nuclear at some point and not because nuclear is this terrible thing, but because right now it's not a good thing to invest in for our country. So, so let me tell you, it has been probably one of the best things for our country because what, what it's done is actually democratized power. It's pushed the prices up to an, a state now where IPPs can come in and offer you and I power cheaper than the utility. So our view is our biggest risk is not the nuclear power right now. It's that Eskom's going to be dead in 10 years because they're going to have no customers. From your words. Well, no, 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 well, that's, that's, that's my greatest wish. No, 100%. But not that's what I'm saying. You know, so, so we have this unintended consequence where where your service provider hasn't listened to your customer, right. and now customers themselves have choice in access of of their own service providers. Things like, for example, storage, the Tesla Powerwall, yeah, expensive right now, but those prices are dropping. Yes. You know, and and we have access to the Internet of Things, where mm. Amazon will now start running your own home. Uh, electricity consumption because they will have access to all your devices better than your own municipality will. So they will then create algorithms for you to be able to game Eskom or, or the city power's own systems. The utility model is dead and I think that's what we have to start thinking about from, from where the future is. Not a, not a trillion round nuclear program. All right, yeah. Okay, so I want to talk about the future. That's where I want to go. But I just want to quickly ask, does Eskom sort of view us as clients that they desperately need to hang on to? 
Um, and are they doing kind of everything to do that? Because that worries me a little bit, uh, given the, the government control that they're able to exert. I mean, I had people knocking on my door uh, last year insisting they install some gadget onto my main board that kind of every now and again flashes green and and uh, I assume it's meant to be a smart controller of sorts. I, I, I'm not over the moon about this concept because I don't understand what it really does and, and what it really means. Uh, and it was supposed to reduce my consumption and my electricity has only gone up and yeah. not in line with the increases either. Yeah. So I worry about them doing absolutely everything they can to hang on to us um, in many ways. So, so, the, so the question comes down, are Eskom customer-centric? And I don't think so. Okay, so that's the one thing. And I think, second of all, hanging on to the customers uh, from a – uh, ownership perspective is definitely what they want to do, you know, and it comes down to this issue of if I can make choices for my own generation and my own consumption patterns, mm. why must some drone three thousand kilometers away be controlling what how I use something that I, that I pay for? So, so yes, they are trying to become more intimate in terms of controlling your your consumption in your home through smart meters and various devices, but are they customer centric? No, and I think that's why they will continue to to lose demand because people will move to suppliers that. Are customer centric. You say, mm. all right, yeah, let's just look, look at Elon Musk exactly. on my wall next to the power wall, of exactly. course, because <laughs> I'd like to nail him to the wall. <laughs> well, I mean, it's the difference between having a telecom ADSL line and having, I just got fiber now, my dog ripped it out. <laughs> Damn it. For the second time. <laughs> Don't feed your dog in the dark. Oh, Ramon, the is so, Ramon just reminding you all how white he is. <laughs> exactly. So, nevertheless, I had a telecom ADSL for years, awful in every single way. Awful. Often, customer service is absolutely awful. Had my fiber. It's been working for two days. It's been installed for three weeks. I've called them three times. They've come to fix it three times within the next day. And it's a much better service. So if you look at ESCOM and any other international uh, international independent power provider, it's going to be exactly the same thing. You know, this huge monolith. It doesn't actually care because it has, it has had uh, the state coercion yeah. to back it up in every single way. It doesn't care about the user. It doesn't yeah. care about um, providing a service. Yeah. Same thing will happen to them. I mean, it's going to be fiber versus ADSL. Exactly. Exactly and right. it's yeah. going to die. No, exactly Thankfully. Right. You know, I think Anton tweeted today, Anton Eberhardt, <laughs> professor at ERC, tweeted today. He said, you know, Eskom saying no to IPPs is like uh, Telcom saying no to mobile providers. It's you know, it's all very archaic, and it's not going to happen. So that, that's why I say the nuclear deal. I think was a was a way in which Eskom lost control of the power, their the power consumer for the first time. People are saying, you know, no to corruption, no to expensive. I'm going to start looking around for my own. And, and I think that, in a way, is a good a good thing because it it takes the burden off the state of these massive, massive investments, which you know uh, could cripple the state's finances. Well, which they have no no moral authority to to do, right? No, exactly. Um, no, exactly. Right. Okay, so the future of power, hundred years down the line, is it all in house? Are we uh, we we basically have whatever the power wall becomes uh, sitting in in every home, and that's how homes are built and and, and powered. Um, and we decentralize all electricity, really? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think without a doubt, we're going to see a massive decentralization of, 
both generation and distribution. We're going to have microgrids because storage um, storage costs are coming down so quickly. So you know you can put a number of solar panels on your roof, and if you can't use it at that time, you've got enough storage to be able to use it when you do need it. So you don't have to rely on the grid to pump power back. You know that's what happened in Germany and Spain and and cost them so much money. But um, South Africa sort of leapfrogged that, and we we are just getting to to a renewable energy stage at the time in which storage is coming down. So people can then define how they wish to use power which only was regulated by the sun. So we're going to see decentralization. We're going to see massive reduction in costs through microgrids. People who don't have access to the grid now, we don't have to build transmission lines. We can go and put up a small solar plant and actually just electrify a small village without having to build a massive infrastructure and costs that come with it. Right. You don't need prisoners on bicycles or something. <laughs> or maybe. Or children. <laughs> Hopefully just children, just the fat ones. If there's Ooh. a sugar tax, we uh, might need. Yeah, that's what the sugar tax is <laughs> The sugar tax will solve all our problems. We don't have the sugar tax. It. Just have a compulsory cycling to power up exactly. your village. I think it's a brilliant plan. <laughs> Great. How long? Uh, is that it? I mean, is, is that an hour? Hey, we're getting there. We're getting there. Oh, we're getting there. Um, well, just to – I'm sort of out of questions. However, for the <laughs> listeners out there, Sean is actually a listener to this podcast. And he actually got us onto this idea of like energy production because I had no idea what's what's going on. I had very little interest yeah, join, uh, before this. Join the club or not knowing much. So, well, we white privilege, man. White <laughs> obfuscation, whatever. Uh, it happens. So, if you are a listener, which of course you are because you're listening to me, uh, and you're interesting and you actually know something, I mean, you're always welcome to join us. We don't bite. We just nibble, <laughs> gently, very gently. And but yes, I mean I'm out of questions. No, no worries. Sean, is there anything else? Anything yeah. else you want to sort of discuss? Yeah, I mean I think you know the important thing about today is that um, uh, we can't let these parasitical organisations slip these things under. We, I don't know if you saw there was this the nuclear call for comment that was sort of hidden away by by Eskim and um, I think it was Arta that actually just raised it for everyone. You know we, we're going to have a number of those. We're going to have lots of price applications coming through which have to be have to be commented on. And I think you know. As as people now, your voice needs to be heard in these mm. issues, and and I think it's important that um, that if anyone uh, is looking for any more information or or, or needs some advice, where to where to go look, um, bomb you guys a mail, and they'll pass it on, and I can tell you where where the where the stuff is. Awesome, but, but get involved essentially. Well, you have to, yeah. yeah. And just realize, I mean, for for God's sake, don't look at the state and the government as your damn like father or ward. We're going to say because no. some people just don't have your interest mm. at heart, and they just don't know and they Ramon, do things that yeah. don't benefit you in any uh, single way. And then if people, you know, they've got a lot on their plate with uh, the Pretoria Girls High School stuff. You know, they've they've got to make sure here uh, is not fought about because everyone's oh. a racist. Oh. I mean, for God's sake, for that to be an issue, just let the girl wear a damn Afro to school. Like for fuck's sake, really? Yeah. Anyway. All right. But it's, no, it's, uh, it's only a trillion rand nuclear deal that's yeah. bankrupt. <laughs> in, in the background, in the yeah. background. Uh, Sean, thanks very much for joining us. Do you want to be found? Social media or uh, any yeah, of that stuff? Yeah, happy, happy to be found. Where's what's your what's your Twitter handles at, and uh, at double helix? Okay, D U B B L E H three three L I X. Okay, all right. Yes, and, see uh, you around. Yeah, so I'm there and tweet a bit about power and so uh, yeah, great. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us and really giving us uh, some insight into, as Ramon said, a subject we know very little about. Now we are empowered. Indeed. <laughs> Unlike uh, Eskom. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I, I hate that thing. <laughs> so uh, you can who find... Said, who said comedy's dead? You can, <laughs> right, yeah. Here it is. Here it is. Renegade Report on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter 
at Renegade underscore report. Um, the uh, hold on, Ramon wants to say just interrupt. I just let you know this week we are number two at Cliff Central in terms of uh, downloads. It's not good enough and popularity. Or no, get more. Get more of your friends. Get downloading yeah, the show. Yeah, or just stop listening to Daddy Maverick, please. It's an awful show. Don't listen to them. <laughs> I'm yeah. joking. They're actually quite good. But we are behind them. I, I'm so. cutting him off now. He's, he's off. He's off because he said the Daily Maverick's quite good. Uh, they're just a left-wing uh, media outlet. Uh, but read Arbevecht's stuff. And uh, you can find us uh, on Facebook and Twitter, as I've mentioned. You can email us at rene- uh, renegadereportmailbox at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. This is cliffcentral.com.